Hello, Church of Nine. Uh, who knew? Uh, who would have thought we would gather this morning through Zoom instead of at our historic and beloved church building at St. Andrews? Uh, who would have thought um, I would figure out how to even use Zoom by this Sunday? Uh, Among many things, the past week has given me a new perspective in life, and I'm sure it has given many of you also. The things that we used to take for granted, uh, things that seem so ordinary, uh, going out to a restaurant with your family for a meal, uh, finding things in an orderly fashion if you went grocery shopping, Uh, things that sometimes felt like a mere chore, such as the church meeting, Uh, So many things that we took granted from God's hand. Now, we can see them with a renewed sense of appreciation, can't we? Uh, In the past week, uh, we, the whole civilization, uh, have been reminded of our finite power, fragile frame, and limited knowledge and control over life. Uh, Who would have thought? Uh, Who knew? Except God alone. Uh, God knew. The God of heaven and earth, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, and the omniscient God who was and is and is to come. Uh, Nothing has taken him by surprise and nothing thwarts his plan of salvation for those who love Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm sure many of us are anxious looking at the state of affairs at the moment. Uh, There is real anxiety and uncertainty in the air uh, about our own individual lives, for our families, uh, about our society and the corporate lives and the welfare of the whole world. I don't want to minimize them nor trivialize the real sense of loss and uncertainty that we face and that is to come. However, let us never forget that God is in control. He hasn't lost the plot. Uh, He is committed to completing his plot, uh, his plan of salvation, his plan of saving all who trust and love Jesus Christ. Uh, We may not see or comprehend everything at this hour, but he is working even through and despite the current crisis. Uh, Indeed, neither death nor life, neither virus nor lockdown or plunging economy could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly, I think, what we see in today's passage. Uh, We see this God, the God of infinite knowledge, infinite power at work, fulfilling all of his promises to save us in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ in Matthew 21. Let me draw your attention in particular to verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, verses 1 to 3 recounts uh, what looks like an incidental episode in some detail. Uh, Considering that the gospel account is quite selective in what it recounts, Matthew devotes whole seven verses to tell us about Jesus ordering the disciples to bring us some donkey and the disciples finding the animals and bringing it to Jesus. And in between this strange episode, Matthew writes, Now, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Uh, We've been going through Matthew for some time, and we've seen this so-called the fulfillment formula earlier in Matthew's gospel, uh, most notably in chapters 1 to 3. Recounting of Jesus' birth by the Virgin Mary, uh, Matthew writes, 
all this took place to fulfill what, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, of course, the prophet there is referring to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 to 9. And the fulfillment formula is repeated again in 215, 217 to 18, 223, 817, 1217, and 1335. This is particularly an important topic for Matthew. Now, by using these fulfillment formulas throughout his gospel, Matthew is trying to tell us that everything that has happened in Jesus' life, uh, his coming into the world, the manner of his birth, the place he lived, his miraculous healing, his humble attitude, his parabolic teaching, and his humble entrance into Jerusalem, none of these are accidents. Rather, everything is happening according to the plan and purposes of God. A God who spoke many times in many ways by the prophets, promising of his forgiveness, of his salvation, of his drawing near to you once again, is fulfilling his promises in Jesus Christ. So the fulfillment formula in Matthew, uh, it's his way of saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, or in other words, with these short words, this took place in order to fulfill uh, what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew is saying, look, listen, guys, the word of God is true. The word of God never fails. God is trustworthy. God foresees everything. God foreordains everything. God fulfills every single one of his word according to his plan, according to his purpose, in his own timing. That is a great assurance in our uncertainties, isn't it? That God is a planner. He sees and knows everything. And he has sovereign power to fulfill and execute everything that he plans. God never fails. He always fulfills. Uh, you know, when I asked earlier, who knew this could happen? I know some of you may have been tempted to shout out. Bill Gates knew, you know, Bill Gates predicted it or this infectious disease specialist knew it. Uh, that may well be true, but even if they knew or predict with fair amount of accuracy, none of them could prevent us from this pandemic, could they? Uh, their plan was not fulfilled. Uh, but God not only knows all things, predicts all things, plans all things, but he is able to fulfill everything. Now, what a glorious God is he. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I, I reckon it's this kind of knowledge of God, the God who fulfills everything that he promises, that led the psalmist and the Israelites to sing uh, psalms such as Psalm 118 that Susie read for us earlier. Listen to it again, Psalm 118 verse 1. Israelites uh, are being confronted with this a wonderful knowledge of God who fulfills everything, cries out, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever, uh, even in exile, even at the end of exile. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let everyone who fear the name of the Lord say, 
His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We sing this psalm. We can sing this psalm both in summer and in winter, in times of plenty and in poverty, in times of health, but also in sickness, because Christ has come and fulfilled the scriptures. Uh, We are not promised that we'll avoid difficulties, disease, or death in this life, uh, but we are promised that we will be saved even through death. Jesus did not avoid death, but he was risen from the dead. And we are promised this, and we can be sure of this, because Christ has fulfilled God's promise to us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and on the third day, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Uh, Joining the psalmist this morning, let the household of church at nine sing, his steadfast love endures forever to us. The Lord can be trusted. He can be depended upon. Uh, Now, let's look at the actual content of fulfillment a little further. This is really interesting and fascinating, and and you will love the Bible even more uh, when you understand just how wonderfully the Bible is written. Uh, When Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills the scriptures, he often presents it with a combo and a twist. Now, you know, that sounds a bit like MMA move, but let me explain what I mean. First, the combo. Uh, Matthew's quotation in verse 5 is a combination of Isaiah 62 verse 11 and Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. You can see those two verses on your screen. And combining them together, Matthew 21 5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fall of a beast of a burden. Matthew does not simply pick one verse, but brings a number of prophecies together to deepen its impact and meaning. Uh, This technique is similarly used in uh, what's called in contemporary circle, a meshed up song. Let me play a song for you briefly so that you get the idea. Um, And Disney lovers, especially your children, this is for you. Uh, Listen to it and see if you can recognize this song. Did your children guess the songs? Well, as the intro was played, we all thought Princess Elsa, uh, the story of Frozen. Yet as the words were added to music, we hear the soul-searching words of Moana. And those two movies and characters and their a journey of identity combined together for a greater effect for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, right? And Matthew does something similar here, bringing in Isaiah 62 and its surrounding context, as well as Zechariah 9 and its surrounding context, and he mashed it up together. So there's actually a lot going on underneath the surface of verses 4 to 5. Now, what exactly is going on? That's where the twist comes in, what I mean by twist. Now, we need to understand 
how and why these two verses are chosen and combined. So when you read the Bible, that, that may be a, a good thing to remember. If there are multiple verses quoted, just, just ask, you know, how are they combined together and why are these verses combined? But let me first explain what I mean by a twist by giving a more straightforward example from an earlier part of Matthew's gospel so that you're on board with me. Uh, I'm looking at the example of Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. If you have the Bibles with you, uh, please feel free to turn with me there. Uh, it may be helpful for you to understand. Uh, here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, according to Matthew, Jesus fulfills the prophet Hosea's prophecy about an exodus. Uh, when the Messiah comes, Hosea says there will be a new exodus. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. But interestingly, did you realize this? Jesus fulfills this prophecy not by leading his people out of Egypt, but in Matthew's narrative, rather by escaping from Israel to Egypt. You see that in verse 14, right? Because of murderous Herod, Jesus actually, he's in Jerusalem, uh, he's in Israel at the moment, but he has to flee Israel and settle in Egypt. And Matthew says Jesus fulfills this scripture about the new exodus. Uh, what's going on? That's an unconventional exodus. It's like exodus into Egypt. Well, that's the twist. Uh, Matthew is in effect saying Israel has itself become an Egypt, ruled by another king who murders infants. And Jesus' new exodus is an escape from Israel's pharaoh, Herod. Get that? Uh, the Bible is brilliantly written, isn't it? Uh, then come back to Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Uh, how and why is Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 62 meshed here? And what's the twist here? Well, the context of Zechariah 9 in your growth groups, I hope you can read it in more, uh, more detail. But the, the context of Zechariah 9 is about the king entering Jerusalem at the climax of a procession of a conquest. If you look at Zechariah 9, verse 4, uh, Tyre and Sidon are dispossessed. Verse 5, the Philistine city of Ashkelon is no longer inhabited. Another Philistine city, Gaza, will perish. Uh, in verse 10, we learn that Yahweh, through this king, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. If Jesus fulfills Zechariah 9, then he must be a conqueror. He must be a conquering king, warring king. Yet when Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, he leaves all the other bits that speaks about conquering warrior in the rest of the chapter and instead emphasizes Jesus' meekness. Uh, the word humble there in verse 5 is actually a quite a bland translation. The word literally means afflicted. A same word used to describe Isaiah's suffering servant back in Isaiah 53 verse 4. So as you read this uh, fulfillment formula, uh, you're asking, is Jesus a conquering king or not? And Matthew's answer to the readers is that yes and no. Uh, when we look at the way Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9 is combined, we get a further clue. Uh, this is really interesting. So uh, that picture shows how these two verses are combined to form a uh, Matthew 21 5. 
You know, at first sight, the bits that Matthew uses from Isaiah 62 doesn't seem to add much to Zechariah 9, right? If you look at it, the first line of Zechariah 9 verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Whereas Isaiah 62 11 says, Say to the daughter of Zion. <laughs> What's the big deal, Matthew? Why did you combine these two? There's not much difference. It's simply the change of order and missing the word rejoice. But there lies an important twist here. Matthew is trying to tell us that unlike Zechariah 9, this is not yet time to fully rejoice. Yes, the king has come and he will conquer, but his salvation is not yet complete because his conquering will be different to the conquering of Zechariah 9. The king has come, that's true, but king has not, a king is not going to start off a new battle with bows and spears. He is a conqueror, but conqueror with a twist. He conquers not by superior firepower, but in some other way. And now we know from the rest of the gospel how that happens. He is a conqueror who eventually has all authority in heaven and on earth, but he does not take authority by the sword or spear. Uh, rather, he gains that authority by offering himself on the cross. He conquers, but he gives the conquest a distinctive cruciform imprint. Uh, somewhat paradoxically, he is a meek conqueror. He's going to be a crucified Lord. What a paradox. He conquers in exactly the way he instructs his disciples to gain the earth earlier in Matthew's gospel when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the new earth. Then the question that is now raised is, will the people behold this king? Uh, will they recognize and receive this meek conqueror? Will they see that the prophecies are fulfilled? Will they recognize with eyes to see the twist in the way that he fulfills the scriptures? That's what we see in the uh, rest of the passage today. Uh, rumors of a new king always throw the capital city into turmoil. Uh, when the Messiahs visited Jerusalem, the city was stirred in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. And it happens again as Jesus enters Jerusalem in verse 10. And it's not a wonder that scribes, the Pharisees, and the chief priests are disturbed. Because when a king arrives, well, he begins to set things in order. The king comes in order to assess and judge the performance of his officials. And that's what Jesus does in the temple in verses 12 to 17. Having entered Jerusalem, the city of God, hailed as the son of David. You know, another name for Jerusalem in the Old Testament was the city of David. Jesus moves into the heart of the city, the temple, which bore witness to God's presence and promise to the people of Israel. Uh, so here, Jesus' action in the temple further reveals his identity and ministry. Uh, Jesus enters the temple and he casts out the buyers and sellers and overturns the table of the money changers. Uh, this is often understood as Jesus condemning short changes by the sellers in the temple or that uh, Jesus is displeased with the fact that there is a market for sacrificial animals in the temple. Um, I don't think that's quite right. 
uh, that there may have been corruption involved in that regard, but that's not the whole picture. The economic transaction in the temple were necessary to keep the sacrificial worship going. People came to the temple in order to buy the animals and to offer sacrifices. Uh, then what is Jesus' problem? The key, once again, lies in looking at the context of the scripture which Jesus quotes. At uh, this time, he quotes a hybrid of Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, and Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Now, when we read Jeremiah 7 as a whole and the whole surrounding context of the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet warns against Israel and especially their leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, for their corruption and rebellion against God. He especially denounces their hypocrisy. Uh, they are abusing other people. They are committing injustice. They are oppressing the weak uh, whilst coming to the temple to pray. They offer sacrifice, uh, thinking that they are okay before God because of their religiosity. Uh, let me read Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 11 for you. Uh, when you hear this in, in full, you, you readily pick up and understand. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gates of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the Lord of us, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, there, you see the attitude of people at the time saying, we've got the temple of the Lord. We are safe. We are, we are okay with God. And this is how God replied in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widows, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of all to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah, God said, he is watching. Uh, you shouldn't fool with God. You shouldn't fool thinking that God forgets things, that you can fool God with your religiosity. And Jesus coming to the temple through his act, he's saying, I am the Lord. I, I, I am who came in order to execute the Lord's judgment. Jesus is, in other words, the new Jeremiah, pronouncing God's judgment. Yet, that's not the only thing we see in this picture, is it? Uh, at the same time, Jesus also fulfills what the prophet Isaiah prophesied by offering the true sacrifice of mercy and compassion. That's what we see in verse 14. Look at this uh, a short verse there, so beautiful. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You see that picture? 
Uh, Jesus is a fiery prophet who proclaims doomsday judgment upon the corrupt leaders. Yet he is also a compassionate healer who restores the blind and the lame. Uh, He is the priest par excellence, offering the true sacrifice of mercy. Uh, As the prophet Hosea declared in chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So in a mashed up and mashup and twisted development, Jesus fulfills all that was spoken by the prophets and presents himself as both a judge and a compassionate healer, both as the suffering king as well as a meek conqueror. Now, let's bring this all together. What what is Matthew trying to say by presenting Jesus before us in this way? Now, I think this is really important. And I think he's trying to tell us, behold him. Behold your king. The beauty of his meekness. The glory of his power. The wonder, tenderness of his mercy and compassion the truthfulness of his judgment upon our corruption and corrupted hearts. Matthew is saying, please see it according to the scriptures. Behold him and bless him. Bless and receive him. Now, in today's chapter, we see two different responses to Jesus. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes, they were indignant. They were raised. They hated him. They rejected his authority. Uh, They hated his truthful words about their corrupt nature. And soon they'll conspire against him and put him to death by stealth and betrayal. They ignore him, rage against him because they do not see him truly. Uh, But there are also those who respond to him in love and praise. Look at the humble children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Jesus quotes later uh, Psalm 8, verse 3. You know, the whole psalm about the psalmist wondering at the mercy of God. Uh, What is man that you care for us? And it's exactly displayed in Jesus' attitude towards children uh, all throughout Matthew's gospel. You know, Matthew loves children. I think Matthew was Mike Chin amongst, you know, the Jesus' 12 disciples, the children's minister. Always talks about children and every time he talks about children, it's positive. Uh, And also the crowds who followed him, I think, all the way from Galilee, hailing him. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And their cry, Matthew says, is fulfilled in the sin-forgiving death and the death-defeating resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for all who receive Jesus with this humble cry, humble cry of children, saying, Save us. That's what Hosanna means. Uh, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God promises to fulfill your prayer. In Jesus, the true temple, your prayers are answered. Whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you from my father, said Jesus. So behold your king today. Respond to Jesus in love. Receive him as your king who came to you in meekness and suffering in order to lead you to glory and victory. Praise him. Praise him who saves us. 
He saves us from something far worse than coronavirus or any physical illness and death. He saves us from the curse of God that would righteously fall upon everyone who rejects him. He saves us eternally. Praise and bless the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.